0: Thanks so much to Grammarly for supporting Talk Nerdy. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to grammarly.com slash nerdy to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, January twenty seventh, twenty nineteen, and I'm the host of the show, Kara Santa Maria. Now, remember, Talk Nerdy is and will always be hundred percent free to download, and that's because of the support from listeners just like you. So I want to first give a shout out to all of you who have made Talk Nerdy possible this week. Um, Well, not all of you. That would be too many people. And I honestly, I can't say all your names up up at the top because everybody would be like, what is this show? This is just a list of names. Um, But I do want to thank the top patrons each week because I think it's a really big deal what you guys are doing and it means an awful lot to me. And um, yeah, thanking you by name is just, I think it's literally the least I can do. So sorry, I'm doing the least, but I'm so incredibly appreciative. So first I want to thank Mary Neva, Pasquale Gelati, Sinai, Ulrika Hagman, Dudas Infinitas, The Zombie Drummer, Phil T. Bear, Brian Holden, Jeffrey Sewell, Daniel Lang, and of course, David J.E. Smith. If you want to pledge your support for the show, just visit patreon.com slash talknerdy, and you can learn how you can do that. And remember, there are other ways to support the show, you know, rate it and review it on iTunes, on Spotify, on Stitcher, like wherever you listen to the show. And also, um, just tell your friends and family about it, you know, tell people you like it, share about it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. That really means a lot to me. You can also visit TalkNerdyMerch.com or just go through my website, com, And you'll see all sorts of fun Talk Nerdy, you know, teas and tote bags and mugs and all sorts of cool merchandise. Um, yeah, to support the show and kind of rock some cool stuff as well. Um, All right, enough about that. I'm super excited about this week's episode because I had the opportunity to sit down with Ben Orlin. Now, Ben is a math teacher who also has an incredible blog online called Math with Bad Drawings. And of course, he's also the author of Two new books that came out really close to each other in time. Um, The first in 2018 is Math with Bad Drawings Illuminating the Ideas That Shape Our Reality. And his newest book, which only recently came out, is called Change is the Only Constant The Wisdom of Calculus in a Madcap World. So I'm super excited to do another show about math. I feel like we don't do enough of these on the show. We don't do enough of these just in general. Um, so yeah, it was fascinating for me. It was a thrill to be joined, um, joined by this incredible author. So guys, without any further ado, here he is, Ben Orlin. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today.
2: Yeah, yeah, thanks so much, Karen. I'm really excited to, to get to chat with you.
0: Yeah, so we're going to be talking about um, your two new books. Uh, Your your newest one is Change is the Only Constant, The Wisdom of Calculus in a Madcap World. But also you have a new-ish book, which just came out the year before, called Math with Bad Drawings, Illuminating the Ideas that Shape Our Reality. And my guess is that these books are based on your blog, yes?
2: Yeah, a little less than you would think so, actually. The first one, the second one, almost none of it comes from the blog. Um, and the oh, first wow, okay. one, uh, yeah, the first one, I think there are sort of bits that were drawn from the blog and then elaborated. What I found, though, is that writing writing a book is actually pretty different than writing for the internet. Um, you can sort of, yeah, the, the kind of like dance you need to do to get attention on the internet, you can do a little bit less of in a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really enjoyed getting to go kind of deeper on some topics in the
0: books. I love that. So, you know, maybe to take a step back so that people who are I'm listening who maybe don't know about the blog, we can tell them about that first. Um, so math with bad drawings. Um, first of all, love the title. Um, super funny. Love what you do on the blog. Uh, maybe you can let some people know like how you got started with it and, and sort of like what it's really for, who's, who it's really for. Yeah,
2: sure. Yeah. So it started in uh, 2013. So I was in my fourth year of teaching. Um, I was teaching at a high school in Oakland teaching math. And I wanted to be sharing sort of like silly thoughts and ideas. I've always liked comedy writing, and humor writing. I did a lot of that in college. Um, so I wanted to be sharing that with whatever audience is out there. I didn't really know how to find an audience on the internet. Um, I knew I wanted to be writing about math and education. And I had an idea that those, the stuff I wanted to share was visual, right? Like I need, need, I needed pictures. Um, and I also knew that I, I, I really can't draw, like it's just genuinely a deficit <laughs> of mine. Um, and so I had to like disclaim it up front. So like, I was like, there are going to be pictures on this, but you, you have to set low expectations for these pictures. Um, so math with bad drawings was like, a, you know, that domain name was free. Um, so, or it you know, was available. <laughs> uh, so that became the title of the blog. <gasps>
0: I love that. So how long have you been teaching?
2: Uh, Yeah, since 2009. So yeah, my first year out of college. Um, So yeah, wow. Yeah, almost 10 years now. I've I've taken some time off. So I spent during that time, I've spent three years sort of as a full time writer. Right now I'm kind of teaching part time writing part time. Um, So I've, I've bounced back and forth between between the classroom and like the coffee shop where you just sit there with your notebook, you know, doing writing.
0: Wait, you can write in coffee shops. I don't know how people do that.
2: I kind of like the ambient noise, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Literally, if if there's like an interesting conversation happening right next to you, then you're not going to be writing anything other than like maybe a transcription of that conversation. (laughs) Um, But as long as it's like, as long as nobody, as long as you're in a coffee shop of people who are also doing the same thing with their laptops, uh, that's not so bad.
0: That's so funny. I'm like the you know noise canceling headphones. Like even if my dog is chewing too loudly, I'm like right. I can't focus on anything. <laughs> I've right. always I mean, been amazed at coffee shop writers.
2: Huh, yeah, I think. But some dogs are pretty spectacularly loud chewers. I think I can imagine. <laughs> like if you take the wrong dog into a coffee shop, that's going to bring the whole the whole thing to a halt for everybody in there.
0: <laughs> so you so you studied. Um, I'm I'm guessing maybe I shouldn't be guessing. Did you study math in um, at university or did you sh- study teaching?
2: Uh, I, I did a couple of education classes, but basically studied math. Although, although really what I studied was psychology. Um, so we've got we've got that in common. Uh, yeah, I did. I, the math major was only 10 classes. So I sort of looked up senior year and was like, you know, I've got four. I could maybe squeak this thing out um, and just sort of did a sprint to the finish and took a lot of math senior year. Um, so my math major is like like when I talk to mathematicians, which, which I do a fair amount, I have to sort of caveat my math major because there's sort of a couple like essential classes I really should have taken that I didn't actually study.
0: but. I'm guessing that you studied them on your own as a teacher, right? You really, um, and and as somebody who writes a blog where you're really diving deep into these different topics, I I always find that the best way to learn something is to teach it. Yeah,
2: no, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. And and particularly, I think the thing I've learned about math through teaching it um, is how the ways in which it isn't, isn't hierarchical. Right? So, like, as a student, you get this impression of like, all right, you take you take algebra, then you take geometry, then you take algebra two, then trig, then calculus, and so on. There's like this march up the ladder. Um, that's a mixed metaphor. So maybe you know, but there's a climb up a ladder or a march down a road. You know, whatever you want to picture. Um, but then you sort of get out there and you start teaching, you realize there are actually, it's like a very weird landscape with all these paths that kind of crisscross and intersect. Um, and there certainly are some destinations you need to get to first before you, you need to do A before you do B. Um, but there's there's a lot more kind of weird crisscrossing complexity to it than I think than I think I understood as a student.
0: Yeah, I mean... Uh, This is kind of taking an aside, and we'll get back to the path in a bit. But when I was in school, I was kind of your standard issue, societally influenced young woman who thought that math was too hard, who thought that math wasn't for me. Um, You know, I hadn't quite discovered STEM fields really in a major way. When I was super young, I had. And then like a lot of teenage girls, I kind of lost interest or thought that... um, uh, you know, I wasn't good enough at them. The stereotype threat, I think, in a lot of ways really got to me. And my path was heavily like just stats. It was, you know, once I found psychology and I found stats, I really fell in love with that component of math. But I really went the stats route, quote unquote, not the... Um, calculus route, if you want to say that there are different, like, spokes. And so I did a lot of trig, but I also did just like a lot of kind of pure statistical stuff. And it did seem like there wasn't a lot of interplay, at least for me, between sort of the... um the calculus people, which of course they do a lot of trig too, and the stats people—they th- didn't really seem to have much to do with each other at all. Maybe I'm looking at that incorrectly.
2: Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably true for for most people's experience. Um,
0: yeah, I'm trying to think how to
2: how to put it. Like the ideas underneath are all very connected, and you sort of can build bridges between. Uh, there's there's lots and lots of connections you could do between between stats and calculus if you if you want them. Mm-hmm. Um, but the sort of like in schools as institutions we've sort of built these hallways where like stats goes down that hallway and the kind of calculus physics track goes down this hallway. Um, And so they feel much more separate than I think the the ideas are.
0: Yeah. Stats becomes like the social sciences hallway, right? Cause like you need it in order to be able to do experiments and to be able to share your results in a, in a um, easily digestible way. And then like physics. Yeah. Like the, the uh, calc people tend to be more on in the physics hallway. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. No, I think that's exactly it. Right. Yeah. I think one of the weird things about my writing is I tend to be, I'm like more interested in the social sciences than the sciences on the whole. Um, mm-hmm. but actually I sort of like the, the kind of pure physics-y kind of math. Um, I, you know, I enjoy stats too. Stats is really cool. Um, but just like where I, it's more what I studied as a, as a student was the, was the kind of science hallway kind of math, but then I'm interested yeah. in the, in the social sciences hallway. Um,
0: I love that. So you've got this interplay is, is the social sciences perspective. Obviously you were educated in that to be clear, were you saying earlier that you basically did an undergrad in psych and then added the classes that you needed to add to get a second major in math? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so do you find that there, the interplay is really obvious or is it more that the psychology stuff has informed how you teach?
2: I think both. Yeah. Um, definitely psychology. I mean, teaching is very, very psychological. Um, right. Like what you're trying to do is figure out what, what is going on in a mind that's trying to understand a new idea. Um, so I think that the, my psychology education is really helpful with, with just like framing what are students yeah. doing, like what is going on in their head when they're, when they're trying to learn some math. Um, yeah. And like, and then where she, are
0: those blocks too? That's like a big yeah. one for me. It's like, where is it like, okay, this part is too hard. I'm going to give up now. And anything after this is just like gibber jabber to me.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think exactly the fact that like a lot of those blocks are are about your emotions and your experience mm. of the classroom more than they are about something cognitive. You know, it's like it's like you yeah. like students get they'll start to despair if they feel like they're not on a path towards a solution. Um, and mm. like they might be on a path towards a solution, but if they don't think they are, then that's kind of game over.
0: Yeah, it's so true. Like it really comes. I mean, I don't know. There's a million different ways to like. Oh, I shouldn't say skin a cat. That's such a gross metaphor. I can't come up with a better metaphor than that. But <laughs> it is funny you know. <laughs> to Like, well,
2: like any task can be done multiple ways. That's like what our culture has converged on, though. Like, you know, skinning cats, like, like we all do on the weekends.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
2: Uh, but yeah, it's so
0: true yeah, that, yeah, open like, a jar, you know,
2: go, maybe, oh, yeah, sure. So many ways to open There's a, a million
0: jar. ways. There's really only a few ways to open a jar, yeah, but fair. we'll go through <laughs> <Yeah>. the
2: jar.
0: <laughs> There's a million ways to do a math problem. How about that? Um, sure, sure. And so, and there really are in in psychology, you know, we love these constructs and we love to come up with theoretical explanations for, you know, how these processes take place because a lot of it really is constructed. Um, And so you could probably link this to a million different ideas in psychology, but the big one that comes to mind is this idea of like a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And, you know, take with that what you will, if you know anything about, the fixed versus the growth mindset, but there is something very fundamental in almost all human beings that like you said, if something isn't working right away for me, and it feels like there's so much resistance that I'm not going to be able to push through, I'm going to see that as a personal, almost like identity failure, as opposed to just this problem requires, um, a little bit more insight, or this problem requires that I do a little bit more digging. I'm gonna see it as I don't have the skills to get through this problem. That's a failure on my part. I'm never gonna get through it. This sucks, and I don't feel good about myself now.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's one of, one of the strange and scary things about teaching is seeing how much, um, especially teaching math, is maybe true in other subjects too. I don't have as much experience, um, but seeing how much students' identities are on the line in the math classroom, like the difference, like what grade is at the top of that test. Um, and I know kind of how, how random those test results are and how arbitrary the set of questions is that I picked and how much it's affected by how much sleep you got the night before or, or, you know, a thousand other factors. Um, but then students see those scores and it, like, it is an arrow straight to the heart. Um, and they really, especially, and I'm teaching middle school right now. And around that age, they're re- students are really building a sense of like, am I a person who can do math or am I not right? Like, am I going to be somebody in 15 years who like, wants to is like you know reading something for fun and isn't worried about if i run into some mathematical stuff because i have faith that i'm going to learn it um or am i going to be someone who like just gets anxious when when confronted with math and then feels the need to push it away
0: gosh and then so much comes out of that right this like generational cycle where then you know that middle school kid if they f- really do fall victim in a heavy way to that kind of stereotype threat and and internalize the what they see as failures and and kind of Stop, because um, just, just sort of turn that part of themselves away. Then you know later they have kids, and their kids are sitting with them trying to do their homework, and they're like, "I don't get it." And they imbue some of those um, same kind of values into the kids, and it yeah, it just becomes this really bad cycle. I think.
2: Yeah, yeah. Right no, it almost becomes like we're we are the non-math tribe, right? Like like I failed, your father before him failed. We all we have all <laughs> failed in math, and now and now you have this legacy of failure weighing down upon you. Um which like it's not, you know, not to not to fault parents for feeling anxious about things they struggled with in school. Um, but it's uh yeah, I don't know, as teachers, it's it's sad to me that that somehow in the classroom we've created an environment where that's what's happening.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's obviously a multi- um a multi-variable issue it has to do with you know st- some failures in education. It has to do with some failures in the home. It has to do also with, I think, basic you know psychology, like we were talking about. Do you see, I mean, uh, speaking of the fact that you're teaching middle school kids, which is in many ways that really critical age, especially when it comes to like gender and when it comes to ethnic background, do you see that kind of stereotype threat in action on a regular basis? And of course, maybe I can do the the two-second, or maybe you can do the two-second um, stereotype threat conversation. Um, yeah, like I, I can try punny. it, and then you can, you can correct yeah. me if
2: I, if I botched it. Um, but <laughs> I but yeah, basically, it's a stereotype threat that Claude Steele is the name of the researcher I associate with it? Is that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is that okay, so um, so, right, him and, and other collaborators and, and researchers, the idea is basically uh, that if there's a stereotype out there that you're aware of, that um, sort of a negative stereotype about a group you belong to, um, then even if Right. Basically, if you're just sort of made aware that stereotype is made salient, um, then it has is the potential to kind of affect your performance negatively. So one of the early examples is, um, is something like right, like uh, black Americans in, in like math performance or women in their math performance. If you sort of present a test to men and women and you make salient the idea that this is a test of ability – Um, that doesn't really affect the, in in Steele's original studies, didn't really affect the men's performance very much. Like whether you framed it as a test of ability or, or like something else, like we're just checking in on how you think about these questions, um, didn't affect men's performance very much, but had a big impact on women's performance, where if you say, we're just checking in to see how you think about these questions, uh, then men and women in in the original study performed about equally. Um, and if you say we're checking your ability, then the female performance dropped really dramatically.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then of course it's been replicated so many different times in so many different ways. And, um, you know, some of the classic ones that, that I think too are, are the ones where it's, it really is just all about framing. Like you said, whether it's a test of ability or it's just a check-in or whether, um, like when comparisons are made, like, don't worry, boys tend to do better on this. Um, so, you know, don't worry if it's too hard versus let's just do this. Um, you see these like dramatically different outcomes, um, for the kids who take it. And of course, knowing that there are societal, um, stereotypes that are in play all the time. So it's not just about how you as the teacher prime before you give the test. Um, that's the obvious paradigm for in the psychology lab, but, but given that every day we see examples of this, I mean, I remember covering when I was at HuffPost like 10 years ago, I remember doing a video about stereotype threat and I found a t-shirt like that was for sale. There's like some big news article about it because people were pissed and they took it off the shelves. But there's a t-shirt for sale that said like, I'm too pretty to do math.
2: Right. I've seen that around as a meme. Yeah, it's really. Yeah, Right. I feel like I'm too pretty to do math, maybe, but you know, but
0: (laughs) I think your stick figure man is
2: no, no, my stick figures are too pretty to do math, but they do it anyway. You know, it's fine. You can do do it anyway. You can do math anyway. Um, (laughs) That's the message we need to be sending is you, you're beautiful and like, you know, you can, you you can do math anyway. It's fine.
0: Um, Yeah, exactly. You're beautiful and you
2: you can occupy yourself by, you know, doing, doing some sums.
0: And so do you, I mean, do you see that a lot in your, in your work? Yeah, it's
2: a good question. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's tricky to generalize about because every student is such a, an individual. Um, one, one thing I think I've noticed, this is a little different from, yeah, sort of a separate phenomenon, um, but I think when it comes to, because right now I'm teaching like a, an honors level. So pretty much all the students I teach are really quite skilled um, and I've mm-hmm. and sort of been, you know, selected into this, this track where they're getting sort of more advanced math faster. Um, and I think I, not, not to speak to the specific students I'm teaching now, but kind of students I've taught throughout my career. uh, I think boys are likelier to feel motivated to like pursue math further, um, kind of regardless of what feedback they're getting from the teacher, like a little more independently of the feedback they're getting from the teacher. Mm Um, whereas girls, I think, and this is something I've seen, I don't know, you know, in classmates in college or, or, you know, people I've known professionally or whatever, um, if if not told specifically how successful they are, we'll sort of assume yeah. that their performance is, is middling. Maybe that's a better way to put it is that boys in the absence of feedback on sort of where they fall in the pack are likely to assume that they're really excelling. Yeah. And girls in the absence of the feedback are likelier to assume that they're, they're kind of somewhere in the middle of the pack um
0: yeah interesting it's kind of like that there's like a dunning kruger thing going on yeah (laughs) maybe yeah 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 i I mean the way that i i've put it before on the show um is that um you know and i think a lot of it comes down to like the the jennifer siebel newsom the mask you live in like the way that we raise boys basically to like not show their feelings and so like it's not it's not okay to cry it's totally okay to be angry but it's not okay to like Um, be sad or look quote unquote weak. You know, it's all about strength, strength, strength when a boy is a little boy and it's all about pretty, pretty, pretty when a girl is a little girl. And so I think what ends up happening is that a girl and a boy are faced with a math problem and it's equally difficult to them. But the boy's like, this isn't hard, I've got this. And the girl goes, this is really hard. If he thinks it's easy, maybe I suck at this. And I think that that's why you see uh, like real differences in performance when you do gender separation in math classes like there's like study after study that show that all girl math classes um don't i think have the same kinds of um, difficulties as mixed gender math classes which is yeah i find that really
2: interesting yeah no i've heard heard research like that yeah that's sort of that you know if you have um all-female undergraduate education
1: you want Mm to
0: In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really?
2: Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
0: I never win and tell.
2: Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With way more women going into uh, into STEM fields, even kind of controlling for everything you can think to control control for uh it's and it, yeah. it, it doesn't seem to make a huge impact on boys when you have all boy not that there are a lot of places yeah. anymore to do all male undergraduate education um but it seems like the co-ed environment doesn't really co-ed versus single sex doesn't seem to make a huge difference for boys um but mm-hmm. for girls it seems to it seems to make a real one
0: yeah it's fascinating i mean it's just and i mean so much of it i think is it Personally, I think is not like you know fundamentally genetic or fundamentally um, gendered in a in a um, random kind biological of way. way. Yeah, exactly. I think this really yeah. is a, a massive societal kind of influence, um, a, a social thing. But anyway, yeah. that's yeah. we've you knew I was going to go <laughs> there with all of this, but I want to <laughs> I want to get back <laughs> back back to your experience as a teacher. You, you mentioned that you were teaching in. Did you say Oakland?
2: Yeah, yeah, Oakland, California.
0: I love Oakland so much. Yeah. It's such a great city. Oh, it really, so good. No, is that I'm, where yeah. you're from? Uh, no, you're I'm from New West England. West actually, I'm from around Boston. Oh, okay. So you're from Boston. You go to the West Coast. Is that where you studied?
2: Uh, no, no, it's also studied in New England. Yeah, it's, I've, I've done, basically, I mean, my geography confuses people until I sort of explain that my wife is a, is an academic. She's a mathematician. And basically, mm-hmm. my geography has been following her around from place to place. Um, otherwise, right. it's sort of very weird. Like as a teacher, to be like, well, first I taught. You know, I, I was from New England, moved to California, taught there for four or five years. Uh, then we were in the UK for three years. Then we're in Massachusetts for two years. Now we're in Minnesota. Um, which all like, if you're if you're a classroom teacher, that's like a very weird thing to do to keep moving around, where you're going to change your licensure and and like find a new school. Um, yeah. But it, it makes more sense because I'm the I'm the trailing spouse. Basically, I'm the one who's who's following around uh, my wife's <laughs> academic career, which is much more kind of location specific.
0: And so now that you're in Minnesota, is she in? Is she in a faculty position now, or is she in a postdoc?
2: Yeah, she's yeah. This is her. Uh, her she did two postdocs, and so now she's got a, a tenure track job.
0: Oh, great! So this is where you're you are now for at least a yeah, time yeah, being. Hopefully. Right, right. right. And today it's, it's
2: it's gorgeous today. It's like thirty seven. This is like the warmest I've seen in months. This is it's <laughs> incredible. Um, <laughs> Oh, so de- definitely, definitely the right weather to settle down in. Um, <gasps> yeah, we, we, we both love it here. It's really, it's a great, St. Paul's a great city. And then we, we, yeah, we love the community around here. Um, it is, the, the weather's going to take some getting used to.
0: <laughs> so now you're teaching, you said um, middle school, but like advanced middle school students. What kind of stuff do you teach to advanced middle school students?
2: Yeah, it's the same. The, the curriculum I'm doing right now is the same like Algebra One curriculum you would teach anywhere. Um, but it's some of the, it's sort of the the students I have are a mix of uh, seventh and eighth graders. So the seventh graders are, are kind of doing, a, doing the course a year early. Um,
0: gotcha. Yeah, it's
2: the same. Yeah, it's, it's sort of the same. I mean, in some ways, <laughs> yeah, I, I wind up being a little bit lazier um, with such classes. There, there are sort of like things you need to do as a teacher in general. That if students happen to be the kinds of students who thrive in the standard academic setting, anyway, you can just get away with cutting some corners. Um, so, mm-hmm. so to some extent, that's that's what I, I get to do mm-hmm. as a teacher, having having such strong students.
0: That's awesome. Actually, you can get really creative. How much do you utilize? I mean. I'm assuming that the math with bad drawings wasn't just like conceptual, but this is just how you teach math anyway, right? Like you have to draw to teach math. It's the only real way to take these very visual ideas and, um, and be able to conceptualize them that way.
2: Yeah. You know, the, the bad drawings stuff lay away. I don't have like secret good drawings that I, that I've left <laughs> out for my teaching. It's like, oh yeah, my students, you know, my actual students, I show them my good drawings and then, uh, you know the the masses online, they get the, they get the crap. Um, no, yeah, no, the, the, the bad drawings definitely persist. I, I, I don't, I don't use as many of them in classes. You might think just cause like, I'm not I'm not going to take tons of time to draw something on the board be like all right now everyone pause for 2 minutes while I try to put the right smile on this stick figure to express I a kind emotion. I was going to say um,
0: these take you a long time that's very sweet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah, right. I mean I'm probably exaggerating. Uh, say well you know, you got, sometimes you got to draw a few times to get the right the right facial expression. Um, that's
0: fair. And also they're they're full color. So I assume exactly, you don't like yeah. color with crayons on the board. That would be bad, or colored pencils. No, yeah,
2: that'd be right. Yeah, right, right. I think the custodial <laughs> staff would get really mad at me so, as yeah. This guy again, with the crayons on the whiteboard.
0: <laughs> Is that what people use now? I think it's funny when I was when I was in school. Um, I'm I'm still young. Damn it, I'm 36 years old, and we yeah, were yeah, like yeah. still using chalkboards right? and white. Yeah, barely, but yes. Right, yeah, you got it. I think so. But we were using chalkboards and um, whiteboards. And then um, I remember, and, and overheads. You remember the overhead, like the mm-hmm. transparencies. And then there was the Elmo for a while, which was like the new thing, which you could actually just put a piece of paper under it and it would project it without flipping it because it. Yeah. The Elmo, it like, it, it like looked at it from above instead of with the clear transparency from underneath. Um, oh, whoa, so it was is
2: what I would call that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Right, like um, a document but now camera. like, you know, they're document camera. Exactly. That's exactly what we used. Um, but now you can just kind of like mirror your computer or you, there are those like weird right. smart boards. Like what do you guys use? Yeah.
2: Yeah, we, we I, I have a smartboard in the classroom where I teach um, which is really nice it's funny there's still some advantages to whiteboards though smartboard is is smaller and harder to write as precisely on if you want to be like doing annotations in real time um, oh. so whiteboard is still better if you're writing something live um, and also it's funny so so in research mathematics sometimes people will give talks with slides like that's not that's not uncommon um, mm-hmm. but a lot of people prefer to give chalk talks um, that's yeah. like a there's like a big culture of that and I think part of it is just that if you're doing slides, you can't help going too fast. Like oh, just inevitably, like, like there's a certain pace that you need to understand equations at. Like the mathematics mm-hmm. is very symbolically dense. And so if you're writing on a chalkboard or on a whiteboard, it limits how fast you can be throwing stuff at your audience. And like yeah, there's just this it, it to think your time.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like your own pacing with thinking, but also the pacing of the physical writing.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You might even be like, if you're watching that talk unfold, you can kind of be anticipating symbol by symbol, or at least line by line, like what's coming next. Whereas mm-hmm. the rhythm is all thrown off if you project slides. Uh, so I'm actually, really yeah, in the math research community, there's this, there's this preference for these kind of very old school analog methods.
0: Oh, I love that. Also, like PowerPoint presentations are almost always the worst. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> like sure. it's, there's a yeah, tendency to, to just really, put, yeah, everything you want to say up in like text like nobody wants yeah. that
2: yeah that is weird. i sort of understand why more people don't use like line by line transitions you know mm-hmm. where like you have one line up here then the next line up here because it's it's so like, i don't know a whole paragraph appears on the board and you just don't want to read it um oh for and sure. I, I, in, in the opposite way i don't understand why some people use like weird animations like you'll have a equation come like spinning in from the background um, <laughs> which feels like, i don't know
0: it's like a star wipe <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, right.
2: Maybe I should be using more Star Wipes in my teaching. Anyway, I think that's you, fair.
0: Maybe you should. That's gonna be your next yeah. book, Math with Star Wipes.
2: Math with Star Wipes. Right, right. <laughs> I don't know how you do that. The ebook, I understand how that would work. I don't know how you do that. As a physical
0: <laughs> book. I've actually like um, the other podcast I work on, Skeptics Guide. We have a book, and so sometimes when we're doing conferences and stuff, people bring their book for us to sign. And I have had multiple people have a sign their like Kindle or their iPad. They're like, "Will you sign my ebook?" And we're like, "How do you do that?" And they literally have a sign their physical. Kindle has anybody done that to you? I, I did so once with a cartoon.
2: Yeah, you know, wait, wait. Signing like like you take out a sharpie and sign the back of the Kindle.
0: Sign the back of the freaking Kindle. That's true, yeah, free- no, I'm
2: I, never, I'm never, I guess I'm, I'm nobody's like quite high up on their list. Like they're like saving it for you know, if they meet you know Michael <laughs> Lewis or something. Um uh Yeah, no, I, I did have once though at a talk I was giving, somebody gave me uh it was yeah some kind of tablet and then had me sign they'd like downloaded one of my cartoons and had me sign on the cartoon. So it was no oh, different from see, if I just smart. signed it at home and then sent it to them. True. Yeah. Who knows why signatures mean because anything anyway.
0: They also took a photo to document the experience. So there's the provenance. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they
2: probably did. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs>
0: That's really, really huh. funny I love it And it is true that like basically your book is you drawing over and over and over So being like here have a drawing that's already in the book Do you do that <laughs> when you sign people's books? Do you draw a little like something? Oh yeah something? Yeah, like, yeah I always along. try to draw
2: a doodle um, Yeah usually yeah, I'll ask people nice. for either you know, what emotion do they want the stick figure to express Or like what mm-hmm. would they like to draw a picture of Somebody recently requested a bird And turns out I cannot draw a bird <laughs> 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 it did not look bird-like like something about the, the wings and the butt i don't know it didn't it didn't come out right
0: <laughs> well i'm trying to see like because as i flip through i see obviously mostly stick figures um your your states are really good i'm liking texas here it's very oh accurate. thank you
2: yeah yeah, yeah it's oh, there right. that, that, that's your home right
0: yeah that's that's where i was born and raised and that really does look like texas the white house looking good the u.s looking really good um not sure about this camel
2: Oh. <laughs> oh man, that was like my sixth draft camel. That was tough.
0: One. <laughs> no, um, I'm kidding. He's great. What do you the, find that?
2: Yeah, oh, in, in the endnotes of the second book, actually, I, I have like there's like a little cartoon because I want to list my sources for each chapter. Um, one of the chapters mm. is about a dog, and so in the, in the endnotes, I included a collage of my early attempts to draw dogs. Um, oh God, and they're all really like seven or eight dogs that, like, if they weren't labeled dog, you might not recognize it. As
0: a dog. <laughs> <laughs> so pretty, that pretty, pretty
2: grotesque
0: so happy what are your hard i mean so dogs obviously difficult birds uh, mm-hmm. not even possible what are the toughest things that you have tried to draw
2: yeah that's a good question right what are the toughest ones i to think yeah the animals are tough <laughs> animals are pretty uh, They're uh there oh the dinosaur was so hard oh my gosh yeah so it comes up in the <laughs> in the triangles chapter um because i wanted to make the point that when you're given this is something i've done in, in the classroom if you're given three sides right the question is mm-hmm. like, when can you put those together to make a triangle? Like say like picture like three rods or something. Um, so if you're given, and the problem comes up, if I give you like a rod that's 10 meters long and then two rods, that are one meter long.
0: Okay.
2: Like you're not going to be able to make a triangle from those. Cause you lay down the 10 meter okay. rod and then the one meter rod goes at one end and the other one meter rod goes at the other end. And like, they're and they just not going to reach.
0: Gonna reach. Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah, It's just not long enough. So th- those two would need to add up to at least 10 you know, like they should add up to eleven or something if they're gonna if they're gonna be able to reach. Um, yeah. So I've explained those little like non triangles. I've, I've explained those to students as T Rex triangles with like these little short arms that can't reach across the body.
0: Oh yeah, I get that. That makes um, sense.
2: So which which meant I needed to draw T Rex in the book. Uh, but man, this is not – I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's okay. They've gone extinct because I can't. I cannot reproduce them. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what it reminds me of is that Instagram – oh, gosh, I've just recently started following them – where, like, it's like the little kids draw things, and then the dad, who's an artist, like, uses, like, online art tools – to To show what that would actually look like in real life, have you seen that Instagram? Oh, that's amazing. No, no, that, yeah. Oh, no, it's no, so uh, good, you guys. Like, um, yeah, I'm gonna find it right now because I just started following them, so they'll be in the list pretty easily. Um, maybe towards the bottom. Yeah, it's that sounds yeah. like I've seen
2: those videos of where you have a baby dancing or just like a baby just moving around, and then a bunch of trained dancers behind trying to mimic the baby's movements. Oh, that's like, so great! Like, sort of which is <laughs> it's like really, really beautiful dances that result. Which <laughs> is
0: yeah, no, I'm sure. Um, this is called Things I Have Drawn, and it's amazing. So it's uh, the insta of Al and Dom with a little help from their dad called Tom. Yeah. So it's like little kids doing these like ridiculously bad, I mean, but normal little kid drawings. And then he does this like 3D rendering, like this really great computer 3D renderings of these things and they to make them look like real life versions of the animals and they're like horrifying. <laughs> they'll have like these weird toothy grins and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. No, so
2: this, right now. no this is incredible. Yeah, this is definitely whoever, whoever's listening to the podcast should should pause right now and, and Google that.
0: Um. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Um so okay, okay. Ba- back to back to the the bad drawings. Actually back to um to the newest book, Change is the only constant, the wisdom of calculus. So is kind of Tell me a little bit about how you decided what the two books in this first, you know, because I know that you're you're working on writing more books now, but the first series of um, math with bad drawings and then change is the only constant. How did you decide what to focus on first, and how do they relate to each other?
2: Yeah, so the the first idea for me was uh, was the calculus book. Um, okay, to me, I was actually I was always skeptical of like. Could one write a book about math in general? That just felt much too big to me. Um, mm-hmm. Like trying to write a book about history in general, you know, like oh, let's just cover yeah. the basics of history, you know, hit some of the just, greatest hits, you know, just lay out, <laughs> you know, intro history, and then people can if they're if they're curious about something, they can go deeper. And it's like, well, what, what would you include? It would be so arbitrary what you would what you would select. So I was I was always skeptical of of how even though even though you know I'd read some some good takes out there, but yeah, you know, like you know the nice nice books that were that were about math in general. But I, I just it seemed like a hard a hard gig to me. Um so calculus to me is kind of the opposite. It's like a very coherent and beautiful type of mathematics with a few really deep ideas about kind of continuous change and and what happens if you break things into infinite pieces each of them infinitely small. Um and that's, okay. that's basically like that's the engine of calculus is is breaking things down into the, yeah this like infinitesimally small continuum level stuff.
0: Is um, that really what calculus is about? Gosh, I am not educated. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's really neat. I mean, it, it, uh, and that just turns out to be a really powerful way of thinking.
1: Um,
0: it's so funny. I think that if you had asked me at the beginning of this, like, what is calculus? I'm not sure. I would have like hemmed and hawed and said, okay, it's a, I know it's like a, a field in math or a type of mathematics that's used to help describe physical properties of the universe. And it has something to do with vectors. (laughs) I think that's probably what I would have said, which is terrible. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Those are all true. Also, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, there there are vectors involved. Uh, yeah, no, yeah, I, I would explain, and it's funny. I, th- I think calculus is definitely one of the things that, as I've taught it, my my thinking about it has changed, my understanding of it. Um, mm. I think right, so. The word the word calculus, right, is um is like I mean like literally like system of calculation, right? It comes from the like a little pebble on an abacus that was called the calculus.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. it
2: seems like like we now call like if you like stones in different part of the body are called the calculus for the same reason it's like a little a little stone. Um, th- those kind of calculus you don't you don't want. Um, but so mm, yeah, so that's what calculus yeah, yeah. is it like, comes from comes from the abacus and the idea is that it's it's really like a system of calculation, right? So it's the same okay. way an abacus you're kind of just following some rules to slide these stones around. Um, that's the idea with calculus too. You're sliding these, these symbols around. Basically you're moving this DX here and this DY over there. Um, and so that's, that like winds up being the experience most people have of calculus is like, you learn a lot of rules for manipulating symbols. Um,
0: and so, but then how is that different than arithmetic, which is just manipulating numerical symbols?
2: Yeah, it's similar. I mean, you can think of, yeah, no, they're they're very similar in principle. Um, the difference with calculus is that with arithmetic, People have always had different methods for dealing with num- like whole numbers. That's sort of what arithmetic mm-hmm. tends to work with. Um, but calculus was building that for, uh, for like the idea of change,
0: mm-hmm. uh, which yeah. is a
2: much harder and thornier idea. This is like you'd had, you know, different intellectual traditions all had their like their paradoxes and their questions and their like unanswerable riddles about, about the nature of change. Um, and so the fact that we were able to kind of pin this down and, and figure it out. So, so it became almost like arithmetic, you know, the rules are a little harder, but but in principle, it's similar to arithmetic. Um, that was sort of the, like the triumph of calculus.
0: Um, Which makes sense, but, right? Because that's why we learn arithmetic. Fir- we learn to count first. We learn to use like symbols in an effort to make sense of the world numerically or mathematically. And then we learn arithmetic. That's like the first thing that all kids have to learn because it is in a way foundational to everything else.
2: Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You can also, I mean, right. We sort of learn geometry or aspects of geometry simultaneously. Um, oh, Cause that's right, almost like starting our shapes. You know, Yeah. 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 I and mean, one of the things that's interesting math is that, you know, accessing it through numbers and thinking about numbers and how they combine and how you can rearrange them and also accessing it through shapes and, then how can we measure shapes and what vocabulary can we use to talk about shapes? Mm-hmm. Um, those feel very, very different and kind of wind up leading to a lot of the same places. It turns out that number and shape have some really deep connections in this weird, elusive way, um, uh, and and actually, calculus is where a lot of it winds up coming together. Gotcha.
0: And so, I mean, you talked about this um, this issue of hierarchy, but in a way, aren't there there are some foundational things that you kind of have to know before you can make sense of the the higher order stuff, right? Like, do you need to understand uh, arithmetic really well to understand algebra? And do you need to understand algebra really well to understand calculus?
2: Yeah, it's a good question. The, that latter question in particular, I think, right, the latter one, the sort of do you need to have really good algebra skills to do calculus? Um, mm-hmm. I think as calculus is usually taught, the answer is yes, for the most part. Because um, mm-hmm. what you're doing is you're, you're executing these these steps to solve problems. Um, so that was sort of what I wanted to do with the book, uh, the calculus book, was to figure out a way to talk about what I found most exciting and interesting about calculus, but without having it require algebra. So like like right now it's kind of behind this paywall where you need really good algebraic skills to even access yeah. the cool ideas. Um, yeah. And I wanted to like get it out from behind that paywall.
0: I, I love that. I mean, I think that's, that's what really talented, you know, in some ways, really talented science communicators have managed to do with cosmology and with like complicated theoretical physics is they've been able to sort of describe some of these concepts in a way that people who maybe haven't, uh, had the foundational physics or the foundational math can still at least appreciate ideas of infinity and ideas of multiple universes and ideas of black hole cosmology. And of course, like we are never going to be able to, you know, I think get into the deep kind of complicated theoretical debates um, without having some of those foundational issues, but at least we can appreciate it. And I don't think a lot of people have been able to pull that off with, with math. Yeah, it's
2: funny. I think one of the, I I think my books are a little unusual in math. And actually, I got some nice reviews from uh, slightly puzzled mathematicians after my first book, where (laughs) I I take like, like you describe, I take much more of like a pop science kind of approach, where what I'm trying to do is to present to you these ideas I find interesting and, and some of the conclusions that we get from math and some of the intuitions, but without getting into calculations, like in the Mm -hmm. in, in the whole calculus book, there's like, maybe a couple of there's a handful of equations in there. But you know, rarely with more than a couple of symbols in them, it's like it's like very, it's a very low equation version of calculus. Um, mm-hmm. Like very, not much technicality to it, and that tends to be um, not how people write about math. Even people who are trying to reach a larger audience; they like they want you to to get out a pencil and paper and do the math. Um, yeah, the, you know, which is a fair way to think about math. It's you know, it's it's like a it's an active thing; it's a doing thing. Um, but I think you can treat it similar to science. You can you know, I I wouldn't want that to be the only type of math book out there. Um, But I think there aren't, there maybe aren't enough of that kind of math book out there yet.
0: So that leads me to two kinds of questions. Like, do you think that this approach would be an appropriate or an interesting conceptual approach to teaching in the classroom? Like, whether it be the core textbook or a companion textbook, maybe to like, Um, a non-majors math course or even to companion uh, a course for like, you know, majors who are deep in it. Like, do you think that this um, kind of approach is important for actual um, pedagogy, like for actual teaching?
2: Yeah, I think probably in a in a sort of limited way I think so the, in the in the calculus book i have some notes in the back that are sort of trying to connect it back to the calculus curriculum because I've done things in a very different order than you would in a calculus class um and I think it could be i think it could be fun as a companion text I've gotten some nice emails from from students who are taking calculus who find it a useful sort of supplement to uh yeah it's, it's sort of like getting to watch a little like mini
0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: A Nova documentary or something on the page that's covering some of the same topics. Um, Yeah,
0: I think that's really great because we do like math textbooks can be rough. Yeah,
2: yeah. (laughs) No, it's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a different kind of book.
0: All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode, Grammarly. It's a writing assistant that helps you out so, so much, whether at school, at work, or on the go. I use Grammarly every single day, and I'm going to tell you how I use it in just a moment. But first, I want to let you know that there are two different versions. There's a free version that can be downloaded by anyone on their computer or phone, and it helps with, you know, spelling, grammar, things like that. But the Grammarly Premium service, which I use personally, it gives you more advanced help. So advanced punctuation, structure, style, vocabulary, conciseness, tone, even readability. Now, like I said, I use Grammarly every single day. Um, I use the Premium version, and mostly I think of it as a tool to help me with the papers that I write for school because I'm, you know, I'm in graduate school and I have to submit papers all the time. But what I found after using it in Word docs and um and like connected to Chrome is that the Gmail feature has been incredible for me. I love the tone detection. It's hugely helpful when I'm rattling off a quick email because it'll tell me if my email seems overly like formal or overly familiar and it helps me hit the tone just right. It's also really helpful with vocabulary suggestions when I'm writing papers like, hey, you've used this word a lot of times. It's a commonly overused word. How about you try this one? Or converting my passive voice to active voice, which I know is difficult for so many people. I can tell you without a doubt, Grammarly has made me a better writer. So here's what you got to do. Go to Grammarly.com slash nerdy to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com slash nerdy for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Yeah, there's a few out there who do it. Like, I I don't know if you know Andy Field, um, who's a a British mathematician, but he does, um, he writes stats books, and they're like really funny. And the The experiments and the examples are like really fun. And it kind of does have that component of it's got like the pure math in it, but then it's like very, very accessible. Um, But that's pretty much the only textbook I've ever used throughout my entire career that has that kind of dual vibe to it. Most of my actual textbooks in stats have been just really dry.
2: Yeah, and hard yeah. To read. yeah. No, I think that's true. It's it's a tough. Uh, yeah, I think um, it's a tough thing for textbook authors to do to make it to make it accessible like that. I think of it, it's a little like you're writing a recipe book where you can't even start the second recipe until you've made the first one. Mm, you know, yeah. maybe not quite that bad, but almost almost like that, where like the entire first recipe is now an ingredient in the second recipe, and then the first and second recipes are ingredients in the third recipe. Um, yeah. And so by the time if you if you like skip ahead to the nineteenth recipe. It's like very hard to have any idea what's going on. Mm. Um, and in fact, you, it's like, and it's foods you've never tasted before. So you really have to make them yourself. And if you make the first one wrong, now you're, now you're in trouble for the rest of the book. Um, so it is, it, it, it's a, it's a tricky thing. And is part of why math teaching doesn't scale very well. You don't see a lot of like really successful, huge, you know, massive online open courses in math. Cause it turns out that having somebody there over your shoulder to ask questions of and, and answer those questions is really important for, um, for the technical part of math.
0: Oh, like it really needs to be interactive in that way.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Interactive and, and to have someone, it really helps to just have somebody who knows, knows the subject and knows how people learn the subject and can, and can point you towards what's the next what's the next thing to work on. And also if you're struggling, it's so hard. You have no idea if it's cause you made a tiny little mistake with a negative sign in line three, or mm, if there's this yeah. whole category of earlier problem that you missed out on and you need to go back and study that. Um, and those gotcha. can feel identical to the learner and it, you just need, you need a teacher to identify which of those is going
1: on.
0: So that really kind of takes us to, I think in some ways, like my, my second question was just sort of the other side of the coin. Um, and it really has a little bit more to do with the difference between the technical and the conceptual. And that really is like, I guess, why do you think that, for example, in popular discourse about STEM um, subjects, um, you know, we kind of know what is sexy in STEM journalism. We know that if you write an article about um about cosmology, if you write an article about dinosaurs, if you write an article about health and sexuality. I mean, ideally, it would be like an article about like a dinosaur in a black hole, like doing the nasty while eating chocolate for, you know, for improved brain function or some bullshit like that. Yeah. That, and no, that, of that course. Very yeah. I'm, I'm very, yeah. Click, click, click. Oh, but yeah. of course, as we know, I think mathematics, even engineering, which, you know, um, struggles a lot, I think even engineering has like, has. More legs in popular discourse than mathematics. Mathematics, yeah, is probably it, like right you can say things. like,
2: yeah, the engineers have built this new kind of surface that's the slipperiest surface we've ever seen, or something. Totally,
0: um, yeah, totally. Yeah, um, whereas but, math, but with math, it's yeah. not. You know, there's a few popularizers out there who, you know, there's like Steve Strogatz, and there's like a few different people who have, I think, done a really, really good job. Um, uh, 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 Hannah Fry of, of yeah, bringing yeah. it to um to the masses but y- even they i think often do it in a way that is more on the conceptual side than on the actual um calculation side yeah so like why is that why is it so hard
2: yeah one thing is that so there's technical things things that are very technical are always going to be hard to popularize um so if you mm-hmm. look at the, the great popularizers of cosmology right they talk about the big picture stuff they actually you don't hear that much about like how exactly did Jocelyn Bell figure out the stuff with the pulsars? Like, I'm, like, I don't even know. I'm sure it involved a lot of really subtle technical work and, like, you know, comparing these different types of readings of different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. And, like, and all that technical stuff, like, that's not, that doesn't belong to the popularization, so that gets cut out. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think math is, is just more technical than a lot of fields, so it's harder to cut out that stuff. Like, there's, there's less left over when you cut out the technicalities. Um, it's like you've you've cut out too much of the discipline. Um, so I think that's one challenge that math popularizers have is that you have to be pretty selective to find to find the places where you can cut the technicality and still have something left to show. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one challenge. And then the other challenge, I think there's this this big picture thing about how we see mathematics. Uh, and I think we tend to see mathematics from the perspective of science, where basically science uses mathematics as a toolkit yeah and so that's how, that's how we see math. It's like this set of tools that you can draw on to solve scientific problems. Um, which which sort of makes math the like the kind of assistant character in the drama, right? It's like science gets to be uh, James Bond like going off and having the adventures. Yeah, and math has to be like Q is like that, is that what it's called Q, the one who like supplies the exploding pens and stuff.
0: I have no idea, but okay. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I think <laughs> this is my I haven't see seen a
2: James Bond film in a couple of years, but I think that's it. There's like there's like some, you know, some assistant person who's like making all these devices for James Bond.
0: And right um, here, we cannot remember his name, which is exactly the point we're trying to. <laughs> Thank
2: exactly. you. Yeah, exactly right. Right. Some like forgettable <laughs> British actor who's, you know, there yeah. in the first 15 minutes of the film, but then James Bond goes and does the actual adventures. So I think when math gets cast in that role, it's sort of inevitable that we're gonna get excited about about cosmology, even though it draws on math and about, um, you know, dinosaurs and, and stuff that we learned from radiocarbon dating, even though that also involves some mathematics, but the mathematics all get swept aside because that's just kind of background equipment. And then, but then there's a different perspective that puts math more front and center. Um, it's it's just a weirder perspective because what math, the way math sees its relationship to science is a little different. It's more like, um, science is a source of inspiration. But not necessarily, it's not that mathematicians are always trying to solve scientific problems. It's more like they look out at the world, they see some interesting patterns, and then they just go off on a weird tangent and start building these ideas for their own sake.
0: Okay, yeah. So it, 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 it exists um, in service to itself as well, not just as a, as a tool. It's actually fundamentally interesting to just do the math.
2: Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, one of, one of the examples I like for this is, um, I got this from Dave Richardson, who wrote, and I spoke about um, topology. But so, uh, when was this is like 19th, like mid-19th century. Um, this is like before, I guess before we knew that atoms were what the universe was made of, mm-hmm. right? And one of the possibilities, or I guess we, we knew there had to be some kind of smallest thing, uh, but one possibility that people were talking about was that maybe it was tangles in the ether, Right? So Ooh. the idea like that mm-hmm. the universe is full of this ethereal like substance fabric stuff um, and that it gets tangled in different ways. and that's what like matter is. So it gets tangled in one way and that's oxygen and it gets tangled in a different way and that's carbon. Sure. okay. Um, and so what that meant is math had to figure out so like that was the scientific idea and then that gave math the homework assignment of like figuring out how knots work. Like what huh. are the different okay. kinds of knots out? Yeah. there? Um, yeah. And this mm-hmm. is the beginning of knot theory. Uh, and then like a few years later, it turns out that was kind of a dumb idea and isn't, isn't true. Right? But it's so sort like of science. true
0: for like proteins.
2: Yeah, well, that's exactly it. Yeah, yeah, like 150 <laughs> yeah. years later, it turns out to be true and useful. And so it was yeah. a good thing that math didn't give up when it turned out it wasn't scientifically useful for atoms. Because it. yeah, that's exactly it. That's sort of the, the punchline to it is it's super useful for proteins or for like, you know, bacteria have these loops of, of DNA, you know, their chromosome is yeah. like this closed loop. And that's exactly the kind of thing that not theory studies. Um, oh, I love so that. That's really. It sort of cool. turned out to be useful, but not uh, not in the way anyone could have guessed.
0: Yeah, you know, and I think that you. Basically, that story really exemplifies one of the other um, difficulties of popularizing math, as opposed to maybe some of the other STEM um, fields. Is that you know we are story-seeking creatures psychologically, and because of your psychology background, I think that you really get that. Like looking at your newest book, um, "Change Is the Only Constant," it really is this series, right? Like you've got these these different parts, moments, and eternities. And and then you really kind of make these connections and tell these the basically these stories. It's it's a series of stories, and I think that that is so fundamental to how we learn.
2: Yeah, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely the hope with the second book. The uh, the designer did a really great job. This guy Paul making it look like a like an old timey kind of storybook, like a fable. It's got like mm-hmm. the. Um you know, like the big opening capital letter to begin the chapter and like the full page illustration with like a fancy border around it at the start of every story, um, which I, I really like. I, I do I geek out about that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's basically a storybook. Um, I thought that was, I thought that'd be a fun way to approach calculus is, is as rather than doing, I sort of tried it the other way where you're building the ideas very carefully, one after the other. Um, mm. And that, I don't know, yeah, that, that ran into that like recipe book problem. Um, whereas telling it is just this collection of stories lets you kind of start fresh with every chapter. Um, and they bounce off of each other in some interesting ways. But, you know, you can actually dive in. Maybe it's better if you read it in order, but you can actually dive in partway through and still get a lot out of the story because it's, it's bringing it back to something in the world.
0: Well, and that's, I mean, honestly, it, it, that really translates to how readable it, it, it becomes, right? Because when you have the the recipe book approach, which, you know, is useful, but also in some ways problematic, then people are going to read it like a recipe book and they're going to treat it like reference. Like how often do you have a recipe book on your shelf that you've read cover to cover? You just look up what you want to look up and then you put it away. Whereas when there's a real narrative to it, it T- it brings you in, you want to go from chapter to chapter, you can't really skip around, nor do you want to skip around. And, you know, each time you turn a page, there's a whole other page that you really are interested in in diving into. And I think that's a brilliant approach. And it's probably an approach that um, that has not been taken enough. I think there are some brilliant people in every field, even really difficult fields to, to kind of turn into narratives who have managed to do it. But I think math and maybe computer science are probably the two fields where it's, uh, historically not been successful, or maybe people just didn't think to take the approach.
2: Yeah. It's it's an interesting question. I mean, there, there are lots of great math popularizers that whose, whose work I really like. Um, but it's definitely true that they're, they're pretty heavily outnumbered by the great science science popularizers.
0: Yeah. Yeah, That's not to minimize the ones that are there, but there's just not nearly as many. Yeah. That's true.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, and I don't, I don't totally have a, have a, Yeah, I don't know. I've I've got speculation as to why it's true. But it's just the case that, yeah, when it comes to STEM, um, the S gets a lot of popularization, and Mm -hmm. M kind of rides along in the wake.
0: Well, you know, I I know that working as a science communicator, and in the kind of in the more recent years, when I first started doing it, it was like the Wild West. And there was like a handful of people who did it. And there definitely were not departments at universities dedicated to it. You couldn't get a, a Degree in science communication at all. Most of the time, if you did sci you had to like do it on the DL because your professors would be like, "Why are you wasting your time?" It why was why actually aren't you doing kind of bench work,
2: right? Exactly. Another chemical. What are you writing words on a page on a screen? <laughs> yeah.
0: Like, how <laughs> dare you? Uh, yeah, it was kind of a career killer. But now, obviously, there's more of an understanding of why it's important for you know the voting public to understand um, why we do the experiments we do and blah blah blah. But one of the number one things you really do learn, and the number one things. That that even I teach um when I teach SciComm, is like it's it's we are story seeking creatures. Like we need stories. It's how we make sense of the world. We are narrative in our approaches to things. And so having a a narrative, um, you know, in, in whatever kind of way that you do it, I think it does really draw people in in a very compelling way. And I think, you know, history of mathematics is really interesting. I like contextualization of these things into real, um, real world examples. And also like you do, which is to tie it to more popular understandings and popular stories of like, you know, Sherlock Holmes or like Mark Twain. Um, I think that that's, you know, it's fundamental. It, it touches us in a way that like symbols or um, discrete conversations just doesn't. I mean, I think that those things speak to some people, but as a, on the whole, I don't think that they feel as relevant to, to most people.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's right. Yeah, I was having a conversation actually with Steve Stogratz about this not that long ago. And it was mm-hmm. talking about, right, I think we have kind of a need for folklore. Um, that's yeah. very much what my second book is about the calculus book is like, it's trying to put together and kind of reconstitute like a folklore of calculus. Because um, cool. I think that's what like, we have a great folklore of cosmology, right? Folks like Neil deGrasse oh, Tyson yeah. like, put together a lot of just like really memorable images and anecdotes and stories. And so we've got this this folklore that you can pass down. Um, and we have that to varying degrees for different scientific subjects. But mm-hmm. for a subject to kind of get traction and to be remembered by by a large population, you like you need you need that folklore. Um, and that's uh, yeah, math has is some <laughs> partly I think because mathematicians are often very literal and like want to get things right. Um, that's like one healthy intellectual tendency in mathematics, but kind of combats like, moves you away from building fun stories that get it like 90% right um, or 98% right. You sort of like mathematicians will sometimes want to blow up a a fun anecdote because it's sort of like, well, it's 2% off. Um, Uh, Well, yeah, maybe you got to, maybe it's okay. Maybe like maybe going from zero to 98% is, is worth leaving it at 98%.
0: No, it's true. I mean, it's a real issue with metaphor just in, in, in popularization in general, because metaphor works, but metaphor is metaphor, right? It's never going to be perfect. And you're always going to be able to find examples where like the metaphor breaks down. Um, But. It's one, and and the problem. I get it. I get the fear that like people are going to take that too literally, and they're going to think that's exactly how it works. Um, But it's better to start somewhere, right? It's better for people to, like you said, ninety eight percent get it, than to go. I'm never going to understand this. Even one percent, I'm I'm literally closing my ears to it.
2: Yeah, I I mean, all our understanding of things is always partial. It's just like how how things are, right? Like you you keep learning and you understand things better and you develop more nuance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the idea that we then, whereas in math teaching, I think sometimes both teaching and popularization, we're a little too fastidious about wanting to make sure that technical statement is exactly right from the beginning.
0: Mm -hmm. it's like, well,
2: even if, even if the thing we write down on the page gets all the technical nuance, like the reader won't, the reader is going to make some mistakes and that's okay. That's, that's part of the learning process. You just got to anticipate those mistakes and then help them get to the next level.
0: Okay. So I think that really makes me want to dive into, you know, a big question about sort of, current society and maybe even specifically American society. Um, sorry to my listeners who don't live here in the States. Um, uh, unfortunately I right. do I, think they're, that, they're
2: probably pretty used to having, yeah, exactly. amazing, you know, <laughs>
0: and, and I also think that honestly, like sadly, what is going on here actually does have more of an effect on the rest of the world than, than it should. Yeah,
2: um, my experience living oof. in the UK for a couple of years was that they were so knowledgeable about American politics Yeah, and like, I kind of knew the names of the parties before I moved there, but like, I, I knew virtually nothing about British politics and they knew everything about American politics. Yep. Anyway,
0: sorry.
2: You no, go it's go so and- true.
0: It's so true. And so, I mean, basically, there is this this kind of sensibility right now, which is sort of an anti-intellectual sensibility. It's definitely an anti-greater educa- or higher education sensibility. And, um, you know, I think math has probably in many ways... Always see right there. I'm being American biased because I keep calling it math and not maths. Um,
2: <laughs> they used to, in, the, in the UK, they used to call it math. Actually, this is one of those weird, weird what? things about the UK. They, oh yeah, yeah, they called it math. It was I don't know. It was like maybe 100, 150 years ago or something. That around okay. Oxford, they started including the s. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, I don't know. I, I could go on to American versus British linguistic differences for, for a while. I
0: had um, no idea about that. Oh though. yeah, I'm yeah, not they, hold they, that yeah, they over their math. heads now. <laughs>
2: Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. It it wasn't, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Like in, in 1800, everybody in the UK was calling it math if they were abbreviating it. Um, sometimes Brits will say that it's like, it's plural and that's why it should be maths. But maths isn't plural. They're saying they, they'll like, no one says maths are, they say maths is.
0: Yeah. So like they're using a singular 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 word. It just Um, ends with an S.
2: Yeah, right, which, like, a singular word sometimes does, you know? <laughs> like that's, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, not to, not to pick a fight. I, lo- I love, I love our, our British cousins, and I'm, I'm very fond of them. Um, and the way they Absolutely. speak is adorable. So, so no, no, not on them.
0: <laughs> so anyway, yes. Yeah, so the the kind of uh, cultural relationship, obviously in recent years because of our, listen to me, trying to be as diplomatic as possible, we have a president and, um, in many ways, a... Um, a governing body currently that denigrates the idea of education. It denigrates the idea of being smart. Um, it's a very populist movement that we're seeing lately that is not celebratory of intellectualism and it's not celebratory of, um, of knowing things and of you know thinking in a skeptical or an evidence based way, I think mathematics has historically always struggled with that. Like it's almost like you guys probably have a little bit more um, practice existing in a universe where people are like, I don't get it. I don't think it's important. I don't think it matters. Um, and now we're starting to see it with basic fundamental science things like climate change and like vaccines and, you know, all these different skeptical issues that that we focus on as STEM educators. So I guess I don't even know what my question is, but I want to know like, how, how are you navigating this in this world where as a math teacher, uh, people like may not even believe that what you do matters or is important.
2: Yeah, I think ma- I think math has a slightly different problem than science does in the following way, which is so science, you have fights over scientific truth, right? Like there's mm-hmm. a large part of the American population that doesn't believe in the truth of evolution. Right. Um, and a large part that doesn't believe in the truth of climate change. Um, that doesn't tend to be the case with, and, and, and those are things that like they really, people really care about. Right. If you're someone who, or you the anti-vax movement for that matter. Right. Like mm-hmm. anti-vaxxers are very, like they've done way more homework on vaccines than I have. They have a lot more facts, many of them, true facts at their command. And this is something that yeah. they're very passionate about. So my sort of like casual deference to the medical establishment, um, like, that, that's not something they're going to be able to adopt because they, they're like really passionately invested in this in this thing that, as far as I know, is, is false. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty confident it's false. <laughs> uh,
1: in As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. That's right, chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No by law. Eighteen plus terms and conditions apply. See website for
0: details.
2: In math, that's not the case. Like math people just don't care. Um, so like yeah. math you get much more of a like a like, well, yeah, whatever you're saying is probably true, but I don't think it matters. Um
0: mm-hmm.
2: Right, like it, there's a mix of like real respect for mathematics and also dismissal. Um, People tend to hold mathematicians very high esteem. They think they're very smart. They think that like people who can do math are very smart. Um, They view it as like, oh, I could, I could never do that. It's it's like, there's a, there's a great deal of respect for it in that sense. Um, But also it's seen as kind of peripheral and not all that important to most people's lives. Um, So it's
0: like, it's discounted in the sense that like they don't care, but it's, it's like still fundamentally respected in the sense that like nobody is questioning the veracity of these like basic proofs or these basic outcomes that's It's almost used as 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 an example, right? It's like when we're talking about fake news or when we're talking about like a lack of confidence in expertise, like the example would be, oh well, now that you think two plus two equals five, like I don't even know how to, you know, talk to you. I don't even know, like, how to have this argument. Like, it's so fundamental that two plus two equals four. That's, we can't even, like, if a flat earther is like, no, two plus two equals five. Like, we're equating them with those kinds of conspiratorial views.
2: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, I don't think there's a there's a YouTube community out there of like people making these two plus two equals five videos. I don't know, man. Sure. If I, would, I mean, hopefully, it won't start anytime soon. <laughs> I'd love to see. I mean, it'd be, it'd be fun to see. Um, there's actually there's just this tweet that went viral. I saw it. I was I was like, please, I got in early on and I saw it when it had like I don't know, 500 retweets, and it has like 35,000 now. But it was That's just wow. someone quoting a. It was like some message board forum where someone uh-huh. had posted the question: "Is seven divisible by three? And someone else replied. No, it's not. I wish it was. <laughs> I, was I, like, I don't know why that, that really tickled me, and apparently it tickled like 35,000 <laughs> other people. Um, but like, no. But anyway, there's this something about. it. Anyway, it gets to the same thing. Your point you're making about like the rigidity of mathematical truth and the ones that we're comfortable with, right? The mathematical truths that we know feel as solid as anything, right? Like two Mm -hmm. plus two equals four is, yeah, is like in, in, you know, in the book 1984 or in that like Star Trek episode that the, with Picard where it's almost the same as 1984. Anyway, that's like, Mm -hmm. that's like the bedrock (laughs) thing. Um, And if you can convince somebody that two plus two equals five, you have like destroyed their mind, right? Yeah, totally. Like they don't know what's real anymore. Yeah, exactly. You've destroyed everything they could know about reality. Um, And then the weird thing is that mathematical truths that are out of our reach feel totally, like meaningless or flexible, or like, this is why you know, people, when they look at statistics that are a little too complex for them to follow where they came from, it just feels like people can weave any kind of BS that they want. Um, you know, like, it, so there's something funny about math, that the stuff you know for sure, you really know for sure. Um, and the stuff that feels beyond the reach of your current understanding feels like gibberish and and it doesn't really mean much of anything.
0: And also you've got this like, this strange dichotomous problem, I think, societally where like you have like conspiratorial thinkers and sort of, you know, which is in in many ways linked to like a distrust of authority and like this very populist kind of view that like, um, uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't trust big pharma or I don't trust, you know, you know, these legitimate concerns that actually kind of spiral into a, so therefore I don't trust like published studies that are coming out of like big science. but then on the flip side of that you don't have i think the healthy skepticism that i wish that people did have when it comes to statistics like basically the way that you know i can in a pretty sophisticated way take a data set and show you an outcome that is not really reflective of that data set just by like some fancy footwork and you may never really realize it because the literacy's not there and that's how we're so easily deceived by, you know, marketing and by persuasion literature. That's where the psychology comes in.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's right. That yeah, There's a lot of sort of different problems entangled there, I think. Um, it's one as, a, as like a math educator and a math popularizer. I feel like I hit a certain border where I don't really know any more on this than the kind of the average citizen on the street, because um, I think when it comes down to it, like, it's true that you'll see people rejecting math in weird ways or deferring to math in weird ways. Um, And when they're doing that, it's not necessarily about the math. It's about the, like their behaviors being pushed by other forces, right? It's, it's tribal affiliation or it's um, it's like the, yeah, the need for it's cognitive dissonance. It's like the need to have your worldview feel like it has some integrity. Um, So when people, if any political persuasion are like embracing math or rejecting math, it's often, yeah it's often less about the math, which just becomes a tool um than it is about the kind of the bigger conflict that's driving it.
0: you're absolutely right it's it's yeah it's it's utilized for those purposes so i I guess fundamentally, my um kind of main question for you is like where do you think we stand and what does the future really look like for you when it comes to like mathematical literacy? Do you think that on the whole, as a culture, as a society, as a global kind of um community that we're doing okay, you know, because you really see it, you see these kids every day and you see them processing these basic problems and and learning. Um, and, and you probably understand to a greater extent, you probably do have more authority than some people. Um, uh, when you look out to try and understand, like, whether or not the literacy really is there? Like, are we doing all right? Yeah, or are we yeah, all right? yeah, yeah. No,
2: it's a good question. I think I think to some extent, like, what are we doing right now as a society with math? Like, what is our mm-hmm. big project with math? Um, and I think it's not actually that we're trying to raise the literacy of lots of people. That is, like, not what most of our energy in K-12 education is going towards. Um, mm-hmm. What most of our energy is going towards is trying to be fair with math, trying to, like, like make sure that everybody gets access to the same mathematical education. Not that we're succeeding on that front. Um, but and the reason is because we're using math as a gatekeeper, right? Like yeah. top, you know, from top colleges all the way to community colleges, like and everywhere in between at a community college, like often you need to pass um, a college algebra course to be able to get your associate's degree. Um, yeah. Now, even if you're not going to, like you probably don't need to solve any simultaneous equations in the job you're going to go do but we're still making you do it as a degree requirement. So it's a gatekeeper there. And then the same thing, if you're applying to Duke, like you need to take calculus for some reason, even if you're going to go to Duke to study like literature. Yeah. Um, And again, it's because Duke is using it as like a, as a filtering mechanism. Um, And so sort of across the board, that's what we're doing with math is we're using it as like a platform for competition. Um, And that's, that's like a pretty zero sum way to use mathematics. Um, it's like, I don't know, it's like, it's a competitive society. So probably something is going to get used that way, but it seems like kind of a waste of math because if we were directing, if we had a different vision for what mathematics could be, I think we could be trying to build a society where like, where mathematical literacy is as universal as, as like literacy, literacy.
0: Yeah. I mean, we know that like basic literacy is fundamental to I mean, I could probably list 40 outcome variables that are directly linked to literacy, right? Like um uh mean income and like, you know, I don't know, probably it, like longer life. Like there's probably Yeah, so sure, many yeah, yeah right. Lower incarceration right.
2: rates and yeah, oh, yeah definitely. Okay.
0: And so I'm I'm wondering if, you know, if if you think that basic kind of mathematical literacy in that way wouldn't be like on the whole, like a, a culture improver.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. This is something I think a lot about this in in education, that there's a zero sum aspect and then mm-hmm. a not zero sum aspect. Like the zero sum aspect is kids are competing to get into colleges and then they're competing to get jobs. And like insofar as one kid does better at getting those resources, it means at least in the short term, some other kid is not doing as well Absolutely. at getting those resources. Um, yeah. And that, that's just like in an inescapable part of education. And like you can ask any parent or student and like they they know that.
0: Well, and especially when you like have like a layer of capitalism that's like added to the educational system. it, it Right. Just, sure.
2: Exactly. Yeah. That's yeah, the system that we're feeding that. into and, and mm-hmm. coming out of. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then there's the and this is like the reason I'm an educator is that there's also a totally non zero sum aspect, which is that, like, if I could wave a wand and make everybody in the country more quantitatively literate, like, you know, have a, a basic grasp on probabilities. um, and yeah, like probability is the, the first one I'd pick probably, but then, you know, and then some statistical literacy uh, and, and, and even just like a little more numerical fluency, um, a sense of what computation is and what exactly computers can do and can't do. Um, you know, if I could, if we could just magically grant that power to everyone, it would like all of our lives would improve at once in a lot of ways. Great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. right? We'd be able to help each other in more ways. We'd be able to complete projects that right now get stalled by, by the lack of that knowledge. Um, so that to me, that's, what's like, that's, what's exciting about teaching is the idea of, yeah, that like, you know, everybody, like having one more really smart, well-informed person out there is better for everybody in some small way.
0: Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. Like, you know, the elite among us are important to foster, I think, because that's how we end up with like, macbook pros and iphones and rocket launches and all that great stuff but at the same time like if the you know a rising uh tide lifts all boats like if if kind of there's a, a fundamental basic literacy or basic like you said quantitative literacy out there yeah i think that there's um a better chance in in each election for the um for the most evidence based candidate, or the candidate who is actually thinking about these things um, uh, from a perspective that's informed by understanding risk, understanding scale, understanding outcome measures, like all of these things, I think are, I don't know, like fundamentally important. And so, I, I mean, I guess I have to ask you. Um, probably like our, our, the last question before we do our our closing questions that we do in every show um, is that really why you wrote the book? I mean, or the books is like what what's the motivation going outside of the classroom to people like myself who I would never be in your middle school, you know, a- algebra class?
2: <laughs> right, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a good question. Right, actually, that right that lets me circle back to earlier because I mentioned um, right. So the calculus book was the one I conceived of first,
0: mm-hmm. um, and then
2: the the book Math with Bad Drawings, which the same title as my blog, was the one that came to me second. Um, and it was, and it was one, again, I was like, I was kind of dragging my feet at the beginning, talking to my editor and to my agents and just thinking like, like, like I was excited about the chance to write a book. Um, but also it just seemed daunting to, to write about math in general. Yeah. Or just like too big. And then, but what I sort of decided from, from good conversation with my editor and, and from thinking about it was that in a way that it may maybe it's true of other subjects, but it's definitely true of math that actually people don't really know what math is um despite having twelve years of experience of it for most of us in school like there's a lot of nuance and and color and flavor to mathematical thought that just doesn't make it to people um like it's It's really easy to come out the other side at the end of high school and just not have not have really had an experience of what um what mathematical thinking is and what it can be so that was like what. That was what excited me about that book. And that was sort of those ones being the first section of the book is, is how to think like a mathematician. Um, yeah, and it's exactly the some of the kind of questions we've been talking about of um what do mathematicians think about and what's useful about it as a worldview. Um I think people are really familiar with computation, you know, like like we can chug through some numbers and get an answer. Uh and that's one part of mathematical thinking, but there's a lot more to it. Um and so I wanted to kind of dramatize and and you know, and lay out some of the rest of what makes math, math. Uh, yeah. And at, at first I thought that would be the whole book. Uh, and then 50 pages later, I was like, well, okay, that's going to be a real short book. That's I guess, that's what I got, <laughs> um, Cause it turns out like the ideas are really, are really pretty simple. Um, and there's also only so much you can say in general, right. Talking about math as a whole. So at some point you need to dive into specifics. Uh, and so that's what the rest of that first book is. It's, it's kind of jumping around to different aspects of reality and of daily life, um, you know, lottery tickets and, uh, the electoral college and taxes and triangles and architecture, and just kind of jumping around from place to place and showing like, you know, what does math help us see about these different aspects of life? Um, so yeah, so that, that, that book, I think very much is about, um, about mathematical literacy and, and, and I'm trying to think like a step between literacy and like literariness or something there's there's to me there's something kind of like poetic and exciting about math um yeah. and i want to share that too um yeah so something where literacy feels like like bare bones basic skills um yeah and then literature is something kind of like creative and and expansive
0: yeah there's like an appreciation component to it that's more than just a um uh yeah more than
2: just like decoding the letters and you know understanding what the word is
0: yeah, it's kind of like you see you you can see the difference I think in kids in school um when you are learning the fundamentals like the difference between the kid who m- has a mastery of the fundamentals in a way that they can pass the test and then a kid who's able to take that their mastery is such that they can take that and start comparing it to other things in the in the real world or can start almost having like a level of poetry or a level of appreciation for it that goes beyond
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. And in a weird way, they can sort of develop out of order, right? You can have a kid who's got really interesting connections to make, but is struggling to decode words. Um, I think
0: that's where, that's how I've always learned. I think that's why yeah. I really struggled with basic, um, like I never learned my times tables, for example, because I realized that you could learn up to five and then just double each to get up to 10. <laughs> like there's just no reason <laughs> yeah, to like keep yeah. learning. Yeah, and so, yeah. and there were a lot of things like that, which I would get frustrated because I just, I I have a bad memory and I can't, like I was always bad. And I, I thought I was a bad history student for my entire um at least up until undergrad education, mm-hmm. because I was like, I can't remember dates as if that has right. anything to do with history.
2: I mean, if you, don't, if you don't know when James Garfield was elected, like, are, can, are you yeah. really a history student at all, you know?
0: Seriously. <laughs> and literally, I didn't even understand at that point that it was about the, the stories and the content. It's not about when things happened. And right. I think that is that is a problem, right? Is that we teach in such a way, or at least most people assume that you have to do it in that order. But some people are are forest first and then trees and other people are trees and then forest i mean yeah. and sometimes the insight never develops if you go trees and then forest you hope that it will but they never can see the forest after that like it's just you know they stay at that fundamental level
2: yeah no it's you know i've had i've had a lot of conversations with with math teaching colleagues about this yeah i tend to be the way i like to teach i think is right in the way you're describing a sort of forest then trees like let me give you a big picture of what we're doing and then we'll try to hammer out details Um, and I have colleagues who, who I, you know, who I really respect and love, who really like sort of need to go the other way in their teaching. They can't like, my way feels very backwards to them. Um, and I kind of feel the same way about their way. I feel like, well, well, you're never going to, you're never going to see the forest or just go tree, 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 tree. It's like, when is anyone ever going to stop and think about the forest? Um, Yeah. And I think, and I think it's probably like, we're both kind of right. And we're both kind of wrong and different people have different dispositions.
0: But the weird thing is we tend to at, at least at the, um, collegiate level we tend to teach majors in a tree way and non-majors in a forest way so anytime you see like you know i dated a guy who took um uh what was it called physics for poets when he was in college from carl sagan which is like the most amazing thing you've ever heard was it actually called physics
2: for poets you like you hear that as kind of like that's 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 really cool i like that yeah because he was like
0: yeah, because he was a classics major at Cornell back then. And so like that's, you know, and and Sagan taught these more popular classes to non-majors. And I've seen it a lot with like math or science classes that are taught to non-majors that they're more like appreciation courses. And then the majors have to like slog through everything. Why don't we start everybody with the appreciation course? I don't get it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> that's strange. a good question. Yeah, I, wonder if they, I wonder if they just sort of assume that people, if you're taking the major, you sort of know the appreciation stuff already? You know, the yeah, But like I don't think most of them of do. <laughs> I don't think most of them do. You know, I think you're right.
0: Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah. uh, Anyway. Okay. So, so Ben, uh, this has been so much fun. I've kept you like way longer than an hour. Like I oh, I always do. I always try to keep it to an hour and it just never works that way. Um, so before we go, I, I do close my episodes by asking everybody the same two questions. And I'm interested in your perspective. Um, both from you know working as a math teacher um for as long as you have but also from writing these more popular books and from obviously thinking really deeply and, and algorithmically a little bit about some of these things so big picture questions here we go when you think about the future in whatever context is relevant to you so it could be you know the future of yourself and your family it could be the the kiddos that you teach um it could be just the our our nation it could be the globe it could be the the heat death of the universe. Um, When you think about the future, number one, what is the thing that keeps you up the most at night that you actually are like legitimately really concerned about, maybe even a little bit pessimistic about? Um, But on the flip side of that, where is that genuine optimism coming in? What are you actually, you know, truthfully looking forward to?
2: Yeah, right. The heat death of the universe scale is pretty easy to answer. I feel like actually where it's like, I'm, I'm pessimist. It's a shame about the heat death of the universe, you know, that's, that's a moment. But, but on the other hand, like there's going to be a lot of stuff before that. So I'm excited to see what happens. Um,
1: yeah,
2: yeah that, that's gonna be maybe maybe a wider scale than I have anything useful to say about, um, yeah, in, my, in my own right, sort of limiting it to like math and math education, which is sort of where I, where I know a little something, at least. What I tend to, to fixate on and get a little discouraged by, um, Is the way that our mathematical system turns people off, Um, that our system of math education uh, is seems like a really efficient machine at creating a lot of people who say I'm not a math person um, and are made like slightly anxious by the presence of numbers in their life. And like we'll make defensive jokes about like not being the one to calculate the tip because that's too much math. Um, like that, that seems to be like somehow we've, I don't think that's no one's intention. That's not like what anyone has been trying to do with our math education system, but it seems somehow we've done a really good job of, of maximizing the number of people with that experience. Um, and that, that discourages me. And I, and I think what discourages me too, I think is the, like the system of it all. The fact that you can have really well-intentioned teachers and really bright, thoughtful students and, and still somehow this is the result we get that that's discouraging. I think what gives me optimism and hope is I think for one thing, looking at the smaller scale, looking at those, you know, looking at those well-intentioned thoughtful teachers and looking at those kids who are ready to learn. And you can see really beautiful stuff happen on a smaller scale. Um, even if the society wide results aren't always what you'd hope for. Um, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's the main thing. And then, and then like zooming out to an even bigger level also, um, knowing that like a few hundred years ago, people would have said the idea of universal literacy was a little silly, you know, like really you're going to get 99% of people in America to learn to read. Like they don't need to read. Why would they need to learn to read? Like, and it's so hard. Like some people just aren't cut out to read, you know, they just don't have the cognitive capacities. Like it's just not going to happen. You're never going to get 99% of people reading. Um, but like, we're there we are a country where, you know, even if not everyone is reading at the level we'd hope for, um, you know, almost everyone's literate. Um, and that, That's pretty good. That's, and that's, you know, like true of most societies. Um, with like, you know, anything close to our level of wealth today. Mm, Uh, And so like, you know, I don't think it's happening by like 2023, but like maybe we'll get there with math someday with, with the kind of math that, that so many of us are struggling to learn now, like maybe with enough generations and kind of sharpening how we package and present these ideas. um, And, and with the right educational reforms, like maybe we could get there in a few generations where there is something more like a universal mathematical literacy.
0: I love that. I'm signing up. I, I need okay. more classes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know where I'm going to start is I'm going to start by reading math with bad drawings, illuminating the ideas that shape our reality. And more recently, change is the only constant, the wisdom of calculus in a madcap world. Ben, thank you so much. This has been such a joy. I've learned a ton.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. I know this is awesome. It's really fun talking to you.
0: And thank you to everybody listening for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy.